0: So, by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new Podcourse subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of Asha Continuing Education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So, the coupon code is F, as in first, B, as in bite followed by the number 20, SB20, and that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription, so you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year, and we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first B as in bite and then the number 20. Enjoy your coupon or as my kin folks say, enjoy
1: that coupon. Hi
0: folks and welcome to First Bite. Fed fun and functional. A speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, ccc SLP CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Cartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina,
1: Joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join. In. I'm Erin Forward, MSP CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels.
0: And enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Pediatric Feeding Disorder Month. Y'all, this has been a journey. And First Bite is concluding it today with a fellow Carolina lady. And I am absolutely delighted to be bringing this month, both metaphorically and physically home because y'all, how joyful is it when you have a colleague in a sister setting that you can refer to locally, who is gifted and talented in their specific spot within our scope. And you can breathe a sigh of relief when you make that referral. This is why there was an R therapy or when you see that referral come from their gifted hands. Well, y'all, that is how I feel about today's guest. So please allow me to introduce the fantastic clinician that is Dana Entwistle, MS CCC SLP, a pediatric feeding clinical specialist at Levine Children's Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, sister state, sister of the heart. Dana and I have never met in person, but several phone calls later, she really is a sister of my heart. And I have heard nothing but high praises about you from my friend, Natasha up in Rockhill and I am honored to have her here today. So Dana, hi, hello, and thank you for closing out Feeding Matters PFD month. Huzzah, lady. (laughs) Hi,
2: Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Okay, so you have the dream job. Like Literally, all my students want to be inpatient peds like NICU or PICU or all the things. How in the world did you become an SLP, and are you from Charlotte? Take, take me through the journey, lady.
2: Yeah, so I it is my dream job too. I'm I feel very blessed to be there. So I am originally from the Raleigh area. Cary, North Carolina, is my hometown. I went to UNC for undergrad. wasn't really sure, like a lot of undergrads, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to pursue. I knew I was really interested in science and medicine, but I did not want to go to med school. And I knew I loved kids, and I worked with kids in various capacities, but I also knew I didn't want to be a teacher. So I my mom actually is the one who introduced me to speech therapy, and she knew a speech therapist and said, hey, I think this is a good fit for you. Why don't you go shadow? So I spent a lot of my undergrad career just shadowing at different private practices. I actually shadowed at the UNC NICU. Back then, that is something that I didn't think I wanted to do, which is funny. And then I went to grad school at Appalachian State. And that is kind of where I found my love for kind of the medical side of speech pathology. I had a great mentor up there and worked in an acute care adult hospital, loved dysphagia, loved my feeding disorders courses. So I found an internship and applied at Levine Children's and have luckily been there ever since.
0: That's amazing. Yes. I never wanted to work with kids. I thought children were disgusting because they (laughs) (laughs) literally, I went to, I was running out the door late. I don't know, like two Fridays ago, because I normally teach the clinic class Friday mornings and I had my scrubs on and Goose went to hug me. He is eight years old. And he went to hug me and he wiped his nose on my scrubs. And I was like, child, have you lost your mind? And he goes, well, there wasn't a tissue nearby. And I was like, Oh my God. But I get that from my patients, from my own children. And we That's have That's what nice scrubs
2: are for, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: but like also that child is too old to be doing that. But here mm-hmm. here we are. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Okay. So I'm super excited because we just had this past Friday, we just had a lovely OTR, sorry, registered licensed occupational therapist from the NICU at a nearby hospital um to my university come and speak to my students. And she talked about her roles and yes, it was, because in a professional education, like we have to learn about what our colleagues do and our in the settings that we collaborate with them. And it was so eye-opening for my students to realize that OT serve a role in in the NICU and OT for PFD for tiny humans and and I feel like this is the natural extension, like this is the parry, like this is the the pairing. But one of the questions that a lot of my students circled around was, but what does an actual day look like? Like how much time is documentation, productivity, patient care, rounding? So and because she's an OT, she had a unique perspective, but not one representative of our field. So could you talk to what a typical day looks like for an acute care speech pathologist in a children's hospital?
2: Sure. I would love to. Well, first of all, just kind of going back to OT's And PTs, I've learned so much from them, and they definitely have a huge role in our NICU population, especially with feeding disorders, and I learn so much from them every day. So I'm so excited that you had one come to your graduate school class. That's awesome. I felt like I, when I entered the workforce, I had no idea how much I was going to be working with them, but they have taught me so much. So a typical day in the life of cute care speech therapist, it's, I think from the outside looking in, kind of like you said, it kind of looks glamorous and oh my gosh, you get to hold babies all day and isn't that the best job ever? But I think when people come to shadow me and watch what we actually do, it it's still a dream job, but maybe just not quite as glamorous. So I'll ho- hopefully take you through some of it. So I'm just going to kind of go through like what a Monday would be like, because that's typically our busiest day. Um, that sounds in. awful.
0: I've I got to be oh, honest, no. just listening listening to you describe this, I'm like, I can already feel the heartburn in my chest oh, rising, yes. but continue.
2: <laughs> yes. It takes a, a special kind of person, I think, to love acute care because you just have to be really, really flexible. So come in Monday morning. You want to always kind of check in on your patient list. And at our hospital, we have five full-time speech pathologists that are on our acute care team. And then we have two to three PRNs that help us out depending on And the that's day. just for Pete's. Just for Pete. Yeah. Just for the children's hospital. So, you know, we kind of all get in straggling around the same time and we print out our lists and our lists are kind of divided up according to our areas that we manage. So our hospital is divided up by floors. And so my area of clinical interest is the cardiac population. So infants and children with congenital heart disease. So I have the cardiovascular ICU, I have their step-down unit, and then I also have a neonatal nursery that is, that houses a lot of our pre-surgical patients. So I kind of get to see them throughout their entire hospital stay. That's one thing that our team has really tried to focus on is continuity of care, even within the hospital, having a primary therapist for one patient. When we can. Obviously, there's days where we have different days off and stuff like that. That
0: seems very novel and new to me because that, yes, because at the hospitals that I've worked at, and Granite Bear is six, so it's been five years, but previously it was you got who you were assigned to, and it wasn't a guarantee that it would be the same person that you saw yesterday. So that's amazing to me that y'all have that consistency.
2: Well, we really have tried. That's kind of how we've found that our patients have the best outcomes. But not only that, that's how families build trust with us. And that's how providing teams build trust with us too. You know, they see the same face day after day working with this one patient, they're going to believe your assessment and, you know, follow through with your recommendations if you really know that patient well. So that's just what has what's, Is what's worked for our team, and thankfully, our management is super supportive of that as well. And then, so we kind of go through our own lists, kind of see what's going on with our patients. We do have coverage over the weekends, but it's just one therapist and it's usually just for high priorities and consults. So you kind of see what happened with your patients over the weekend, what's changed, and then we kind of list out our patients in order of priority. Obviously patients that are making daily change or patients that need feeding plans or new consults are kind of at the top of the list. And then patients that are kind of our frequent flyer residents that maybe already have a a stable feeding plan, like they already have a G-tube and they have been well-established in therapy and they're just here, you know, waiting on a procedure. Those are kind of at the bottom of the list. And obviously, there's days where we can see all of our patients, which is great. And then there are days where you really have to prioritize. And that's just why we we do it that way. So in addition to kind of managing your own list, we have to talk with your other team members, right? If somebody has too much for their day, too many priorities, hey, what can I help you with? If there are outpatient swallow studies that we also need to cover, we try to coordinate that with what our priorities for the patients are for that day, what their feeding times are. So it's sometimes I call it like a little puzzle, like we're trying to piece together our day so that the most patients can get seen in that day. And everyone kind of has equal footing. No one's not one therapist is too busy.
0: Who assigns the patients to y'all? Because I, I can hear a lot of folks that are interested in doing this, like who picks out who gets patients?
2: So we kind of do it ourselves. Thankfully, we we don't have anything like a speech lead. We have a leadership team of PT, two, actually one PT and two OTs. And, you know, speech is kind of the ugly stepchild of therapies. And thankfully, (laughs) they kind of let us do our own thing for the most part. And we, I'm happy to say that we just, we work together really well as a team. So we try to meet everybody's needs and interests. And we, you know, rotate throughout the different areas of the hospital, so that everyone kind of gets a fair share of experience. Obviously, there's people on our team that have special interests like myself, I really love the cardiac population. um, So I'm mostly there. But you know, and same thing with neonatal world. But yeah, we kind of do it ourselves, which is kind of cool.
0: Wait, do y'all have, does, does Levine have like a specific cardiac PICU or yes. is
2: it like, yep. What? That's it's so cool. cool. It's pretty cool. So we have a, yep. Our own CV ICU. I think it's What about. does it stand for? Cardiovascular ICU. Beautiful. Okay. Yep. And it actually shares a floor with the PICU. So it's just on the other side of the floor. And so we try to plan our day kind of according to what all is happening with our patients and outpatient swallow studies. And typically we'll have other obligations as well that we are going to have to fit into our day, like going to our rounding with our different providing teams. So every Monday we do neurodevelopmental rounds with PT, OT speech for all of our cardiac patients. Yeah, we also have a dietician there, nurse practitioner, social work. So we try to cover all of our bases and kind of meet all of the neurodevelopmental needs of that patient and what they might need for that week. And we have different uh, huddles with our own therapy teams where we talk with PTOT, see what the needs are for the hospital that week, equipment needs, announcements, those kinds of things. And then... Oftentimes, we are also involved in a lot of family meetings, especially when things like G-tube conversations come up or new trach conversations and they want speeches perspective and the family often has a lot of questions for us. So we have to kind of schedule in time for family meetings as well. But yeah, that's kind of what our day looks like. Um, Try to see most of the priorities in the morning, maybe take like 10 minutes for lunch (laughs) while documenting. And then get back to it in the afternoon.
0: Uh, yeah. So a day in the life of home health by comparison, you yeah. have a schedule, you know where you're going. However, you don't know if you're going to get stuck behind a tractor carrying a hay bale. I once got chased by a pack of chihuahuas. Cannot make that up. I once went through a field that was apparently having a grasshopper infestation. So oh like, it's country living at its finest. So I had the windows down and all I know is the windows were down and like grasshoppers were flying at me in all directions. Um, <laughs> um, and then uh, that was, that was fun. Um, and then when I do my city days, I have had to duck and cover due to gang infighting in downtown Columbia on a lady's porch. And I once pulled a cockroach out of the kid's trach. At uh, Oh my Yeah. Gosh. So my days are not as, they're not as pretty as always. <laughs> as and those are like, please, Dana, please know that those are like extreme days. Okay. Like, honestly, it's me. So they're not really extreme days. Like, eventful things happen at least once a week in my line of work. But, you know, things happen. I once things sat happen. on dog poo. So like, you know, not the most glam Home health, y'all, home health is not for the faint of heart. No, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. But I mean, I thrive in chaos. So like there's that. Yep,
2: there's yes, that. But- it's a different kind of chaos, but I think both are chaos nonetheless, for sure. Yes,
0: yes. Now I do, I will admit one thing in the world of home health that I – absolutely miss with my core pulsating self is the fact that you get to have consistent rounds because you get to speak to the physicians and the interprofessional practice team regularly and the home health or even to some extent the outpatient clinics we don't have quick access to the physician or to the rest of the allied health team and that's That's typically a breakdown in continuity of care. And I would love it if I have so many process improvement ideas, but that's like a whole podcast in and of itself and like not the focus of today. But that's, I absolutely love that you talk about the value of rounding from an interprofessional practice self, because y'all, if you think you can fix, regardless of what setting, a patient's feeding disorder or swallowing disorder solo, then I friend That angle works so well. So let me know how that works out for you because I really think that we are only as good as the team that we build around the patients. So um, I
2: couldn't agree more. And that, you know, we actually just hired a PRN who was our like go to home health person in Charlotte. She's wonderful, but she has commented that on that like multiple times. She's like, I just love talking to the doctors. I'm so happy I can talk to the doctors. And I it is something we take for granted. Obviously they're in the hospital for a reason and they, you know, talking to them is necessary. But I, I do wish that on the outside there was better communication even between the acute care therapist and the home health therapist.
1: Yes.
0: I wish Okay, wait, I can tell you why. When I first moved here, because I came from a hospital setting, right? Like I was discharged, like I was inpatient, outpatient, and I would always call the other clinician. But like it was easier for me because it was – to be fair, we were like the only hospital for 45 minutes in any direction. So like I literally knew everybody that was around me because there were not that many people. Like I could pick up the phone and call them because I knew where they were going because of the extensive exhaustive efforts of our discharge planner, right? But when I moved here, it was very overwhelming to be on my side of the table and to get a script. And no medical records because that's commonplace in our world. It's intimidating to one, intimidating and exhausting to backtrack and find out who was the prior SLP, what hospital did they come from, and to track down their records. And also, you don't want to come across as being clueless or inexperienced and seeking to understand what's happened. And ego, our egos get in the way of patient care because we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about. But like, we don't always know inpatient terminology because we're outpatient. Yeah. And I think that's,
2: that's okay. And I, but I, I just wish there was better communication and that everyone could put their egos aside for the patients. You know what I mean? Like I really, and I wish that we knew where the patients were going always. And we don't, Otherwise, I would schedule time in my day to pick up the phone and call whoever I knew it was because these kids are complicated and feeding disorders are complicated. And we, you know, we need to put our brains together and for continuity of care and to see better outcomes. We really do.
1: I'm see, very passionate about advantage- that, if you can't tell. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, but that's that's the advantage of small town living versus big city life. Like in a yeah. small town, there's probably only two potential um outcomes versus you have hundreds of folks that, that your patients could go see.
2: Right. And our patients really, especially for our cardiac program, they come from all over. I mean, we have we just sent a patient home to Wilmington with a nasogastric tube. And I'm like, I don't know any therapists in Wilmington. I hope they're getting good therapy. I hope that they follow up with us still. You know, it's, it's, it is crazy. The, the reach that I feel like our hospital has at this point, it is hard to keep track of everybody's therapists and making sure everyone has the swallow study and knows the plan. So I really try to when the parents are going home try to kind of make a discharge speech packet for them with bottles nipples whatever they might need the pacifier that the patient likes and then like a written out handout for the parent but also include my information at the bottom so that's been helpful i think i've been definitely getting more contact that way but
0: but thank you for the effort on behalf of all yes. of us on this side we appreciate that lady of course <laughs> of course i'm going
2: to keep doing it
0: Yes. Okay. So well, talk to me about the different patients that you see, because that's one thing that I think is on my end, when I get a new referral, I may be with that patient for like six months to four years, right? Like while we're going, it's like long haul on my end. So I don't, I see the long distance progress, but I don't see a variety in diagnoses, but you you see so many different diagnoses because they're there for like a shorter period of time. So can you talk to us about that?
2: Sure. So in our hospital, kind of like I touched on before, we do have a cardiovascular ICU and their their step-down unit where they work on discharge education, feeding plans. That's kind of the unit where they're getting to be more stable and getting swallow studies and all that. We also have our NICU. It is a level four NICU, eighty five beds. We also have our progressive care neonatal unit as
0: well, where we work on. Sorry, can you explain for those that aren't familiar with the different levels in the NICU? Isn't level four like the highest level NICU? Yep, that's the highest level. So we accept anything and everything.
2: <laughs> I've seen a twenty two weeker, uh, you know crazy things that you would have never thought like 10 years ago, we really weren't even saving those kids yet. So it's pretty crazy. Um, and so, oops, I'm sorry. Getting a phone call. (laughs) It's my husband decline. Um, Oh my God. I hope they do not edit that out. That's precious. (laughs) (laughs) classic. Hey, uh, I have a podcast that I'm doing this afternoon. Totally forgot. He probably totally forgot.
0: You you have no idea how many times they've edited out my children vomiting or my dogs barking uh, at the
1: Amazon delivery guy. So you're good.
2: <laughs> blessed. So yeah, we have... A NICU and then also um, a neonatal progressive care unit where we work a lot on growing, feeding, discharge planning, all that kind of stuff. We also just have general pediatric floors where we see anything from a teenager with a TBI or spinal cord injury or a baby coming in for failure to thrive and needs a workup. We have our hematology and oncology floors, and we get consulted there some of the time, not all of the time, for patients that are going through chemo, that may not want to eat anymore, or patients that have brain tumor resections that need a cognitive communication evaluation. And then we also have one of the only pediatric inpatient rehab units in the Southeast and we have one full time therapist that works there exclusively, and they take a lot of older kids, I would say with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, but th- they have taken babies as well six months and up. The catch there is that the patient has to be able to tolerate you know three to four hours of therapies a day, so most babies don't do that they need <laughs> they need nap time, so yeah, that's kind of the range and What's cool is, you know, earlier on in my career, I liked floating around to all the different floors and getting a feel for everything. And and on the weekends and holidays, you know, I'm covering every single unit. So I feel like I'm still able to keep up my skills while still kind of focusing on my my passion, which is cardiovascular disease.
0: That's absolutely phenomenal to know that all of that is within 90 minutes of where I live.
1: It's crazy, right? It's like, very uh, and honestly,
0: I mean, okay. So here's, I I just have to, all right, right now, y'all, this is a problem and I'm just going to go ahead and own this and claim this and put it in the universe that somebody somewhere will engage in advocacy to get this fixed right now. A lot of times, state Medicaid will not pay for an individual with a specific state's Medicaid to cross state guidelines or state lines, right? And that's, that's a problem because to have those resources within 90 minutes of my house versus the largest children's hospital in our state is two and a half hours from my house, that's problematic how is that brutal? MUSC? Yes. And oh my gosh, I love MUSC. And so many of my dear former students and friends work down there. Like I'm so proud of them, but like, huzzah. But it stinks that like if we have a patient that lives in like Rock Hill and they are on South Carolina State Medicaid, like trying to get them there when it's the closest hospital for like an inpatient, there's there's issues. There are issues. and And that's not okay. So this is why we advocate. To make process improvements at a federal level, that would be
1: my suggestion, so totally agree yep. totally Everybody agree
0: listening advocate with us, yay, all right, so you touched on something that um is profound, and we have to we have to give it its credit ever so quickly um before we move on to like some of the additional questions you said earlier in your career, you worked with different settings, different floors before you honed in, so I have a lot of students that ask, "Hey, I really want to get into the NICU, or Hey, I really want to get in here." Or people message us on the Instagram account, and they're like, "Hey, well, I'm home health now, but like one day I'd like to PRN or get inpatient." What classes did you take? What courses did you do? How did you get there to so that you felt that your skills were you were more confident in your skills?
2: Yeah. So obviously, I really lucked out having a graduate semester internship there. So I was, you know, full-time at that hospital watching somebody, a very experienced mentor for an entire semester. So first of all, just want to get that out of the way. I was very lucky with that. And I know I lucked out on that to feel comfortable and confident. And, uh, especially with infant and, uh, children's feeding disorders. I I did do a lot of coursework. I love all of Catherine Shaker's courses. I went to Boston and did an infant feeding disorder course at Brigham Children, Women and Children's Hospital um, with Pamela Dodrill. You know, I kind of even went into doing some of the fees stuff as well, even though we don't quite have a fees program set up yet at our hospital. That's one of my goals. I did a fees course for adults and just kind of got a nice refresher of adult anatomy and then also took a neonatal and infant fees course just to kind of see how that applied. So, and I'm, I was really lucky enough to have great mentors as well at my hospital, but I get that question a lot too. Like, okay, I, this is where I'm at now, but this is my dream job. This is how, how do I get there? And what I really I encourage people to do is, you know, a talk to somebody that actually works in a in an acute care pediatric setting to see what it's like, and if they can to shadow because, again, I think it sounds really glamorous, and I've I've been through enough interviews, I've been through enough hires and enough turnover at this point to know that the job is not for everyone, even if you kind of think it is. So definitely shadowing before saying, this is my dream job. I will do anything and everything to get there. You know what I mean? I think you need to know what you're getting into before <laughs> fully committing. But I will say that getting into a hospital system, whether that be through a pediatric outpatient um, center, like our HRM health has Carolina's rehab that has different pediatric outpatient centers so that the acute team can get to know you we communicate a lot with those speech therapists through our own system and you know email just so that people can get to know you and know that you're a reliable source to send kids to just having that relationship I think is helpful if any job does come up we, we it's obviously nice to know the person that's applying and then I've also trained a lot of people that have come from an adult hospital without any peds experience or minimal peds experience and trained them in pediatric acute care. And I, I think the, the knowledge of how an acute care speech therapist should function and all of the medical stuff that comes with it it does apply for kids obviously you have to learn a ton about pediatrics but that is i think an easy sometimes an easier transfer over than say a school speech therapist that works with kids but they don't really do a ton in feeding and swallowing disorders if that makes sense
0: yes no that that makes perfect sense yes yes okay okay so i just want to know what's what's the most unique disorder disease like when you look back on your career thus far what's one of your most profound experiences oh gosh that is such a good question yes right because I'm like dying to know like I mean I've got a couple of VSD kiddos that like Mm -hmm. sorry VSD ventral septal septal defect right it's been a long day baby yeah that's all (laughs) right Like, I've had a couple VSD kiddos in the home health and Watching their progression is so profound because they have to be it's like feeder grower, but like in a home health setting to get them big enough and so that they can survive surgery, right? Yes. And yes. And so and I love when they come home and they're like on the extra calorie dense formula because you can literally watch their kinkles grow week by week. <laughs> right? (laughs) That makes my heart so happy. But yes, but so do you have do you have one or two that stick out is just like, I learned a lot from this?
2: Oh, yes, I have so many. I'm trying to think of one that or two that really hit home. I think Right now, we have so many kids waiting on a heart transplant, and it kind of takes me back to when I first started, I picked up a cardiac baby who had a LVAD or a Berlin heart. It's a left ventricular assistance device, so it's actually keeping the patient alive. And it's this like, there's like two tubes coming out of the chest and it's oxygenating the blood. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen. It almost makes me a little queasy to look directly at, but (laughs) my, one of my very first patients had one of those. And I just remember being like, I am so out of my element. I am so scared, but with the help of again, my PT and OT counterparts for positioning and also my mentors, I just that patient specifically was able to stay in the, well, was not able, but had to stay in the hospital waiting on a heart for months. So I really kind of got to work on not only just feeding, but also developmental things. And I got really close to the family. We set a lot of um, individualized goals that the family wanted to see happen. And, you know, it was really cool to be there throughout This patient's development. And then when he got his heart and went home, it was just very cool to be part of that experience. Even though he was stuck in a hospital, we were still able to provide all of that age-appropriate developmental STEM while also working on feeding. So that one, I think, really hit home to me of how much of an impact a speech pathologist in a hospital can make. Even, you know, sometimes we have kids that stay just a couple of days but it is cool to see some of those longer term kids as well. It was amazing. And I'm trying to think of another one, but one in particular that stands out is another cardiac baby that, like you said, a lot of our cardiac babies have to be on high calorie, dense formula to grow. And sometimes I think in medicine, you just get kind of get the whole medical team sometimes get stuck in what works for most patients. And that's what we m- recommend for most patients, if that makes sense. And we had a mom that what taught me a lot. And she was very, very passionate about breastfeeding. She breastfed all of her other kids. That was her goal. The medical team, we're getting b- better at it. But typically for cardiac babies, we can't allow for complete breastfeeding because they need so many calories to grow. And all this mom was asking for was, hey, I I just want to try. I want a chance. And we don't really know at the end of the day how many mLs that baby's getting from the breast. And we don't really know at any given feeding how many calories is in breast milk. So just learning that experience taught me that, you know, we really need to prioritize what families, what their goals are for their babies. And sometimes it is okay to kind of let the family drive the plan and see what happens. The baby actually ended up b- breastfeeding very well. They had to do a couple of bottles a day and I think maybe have a little bit of NG supplementation. But that that experience really taught me to make family-centered goals. And that has helped me in my career to get, I think, better buy-in from parents, better, building better relationships with parents, more trust, and when you have that, you can you can accomplish anything. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones taking the baby home, and you are there to help, make recommendations, and assist in feeding. But I think that is a way that parents definitely feel valued, and you can build trust with them.
0: Parent coaching—that's yes. we talk so much in the world of early intervention. Y'all, long gone are the days of direct service delivery model. In all aspects of our profession. Yes, there is a time and a place for direct service delivery coupled within the framework of parent coaching as in, Hey, I hear the goal that you want to work on. This is your child's prognosis. Let's make sure that the strategies that I give to you, whether it be language, communication, cognition, swallowing across the life continuum aligns with your patient's prognosis, your child's prognosis, and your desired outcomes. Let's basically toss it all in a pot, stir it, cast your magic wand, and then ta-da, there's your session, right? Parent coaching, while we do direct service delivery on, hey, angle the child this way, side lying, upright for this child, a different flow nipple, all of those things. Yes. Mm, I love that. And educating behind the
2: why, like, yes. you know, why does this child need a ultra preemie nipple? Why are we doing right sideline? Why is it important to do pacing? I think, you know, even if your parent has um, a low educational level, I think it's important to at least try to meet them where they're at, try to get them to understand, because that, that just creates more buy-in and more follow-through at home.
0: Yes. And remember that when you, this is a personal pet peeve of myself and it's something that it's code switching. If we don't accurately code switch from technical jargon to layman's terms, we can come off as authoritative, holier than thou and condescending. Those are like nice way of saying how I'm trying to say what I'm trying to say. So make sure that when you're using technical jargon, I always say, all right, y'all, I'm going to give you the technical words so you understand what the doctor's talking to you about, but then I'm going to translate it because unless you're the doctor, it doesn't always stick. And, you know, I paraphrase it and the families are always like, Michelle, we appreciate that. And I'm like, yes, well, that's what I'm here to." I'm like your medical translator slash encyclopedia walking, right? I oh, love and, it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Self-deprecating humor, which I know I need to be doing less of, and I gave it up for Lent, but it's like a tricky beast to let go of. But there it is. I'm still I'm not a Catholic or Lutheran, sorry, <laughs> but like I always feel like I have to caveat like the specifics behind the methodology. But use um, uh, self-deprecating humor. Um, but yes, that's that that helps them. Now, with your little ones, I mean, and I know that now you specialize in the CVICU, cardiovascular ICU. That's just so cool to like say it out loud. What does, I hats to you. I could never work in that setting that's just not, I love home health. I love my grasshoppers flying in the car and random dog piles on the floor that you have to watch out for. Um, What you do, hats to you. But in your setting, what does an acute care plan of care look like for a tiny little one? And to piggyback up on that, like, when do you deem it's appropriate to do a swallow study?
2: Yeah, so when I get a consult, hopefully it's for let's just say it's a a cardiac baby that is having surgery. I love getting pre-op consults because then I can really see what the if they're stable enough, obviously, then I can really see what the patient is doing prior to surgery, so I can know what has changed and possibly what is now. Um, not functional after surgery. So the first thing I do is try to, you know, get a history from the parents. Even if the patient was just born, did they get to go to the breast at all right after birth? Have they taken a bottle? Have the parents seen him them take a bottle? Do they take their pacifier well? And then I look at if they're on any respiratory support, are they really stable enough to feed? More importantly, Why do they need that respiratory support? Do they have premature lungs? Is it their cardiac defect? Are they breathing a million times a minute? And will that prevent safe feeding? So looking at that piece of it, also kind of chart reviewing, making sure what meds are they on? Are they weaning from any sedation? Are they on pain medication? Are they on any medications that are going to affect their state? Can they reach a quiet alert state when I'm with them? I think a lot of our evaluations even are, are ed- is educating the family and sometimes the caregivers about state regulation and how that can affect feeding. So if the baby, I change the baby's diaper to just try to wake them up gently and they lose their mind and they can't come back to that nice, quiet, alert state, I know that they're probably not going to get there with a, a bottle feeding assessment for that day. And then doing an oral motor exam, of course, seeing if they're they're showing any feeding cues. And then two big things, especially after surgery, that I want to look for are secretion management. You know, are they drooling? Are they super bubbly? Are they swallowing their secretions? And vocal quality, how strong is their voice, especially for any surgeries that are going to include the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, Sometimes they have left vocal cord paralysis following those that can put us at high risk for silent aspiration.
0: Hang on. Hang on. This is is a critical piece. What she just described, y'all, that doesn't always show up immediate after surgery. I've worked with enough cardiac patients post-surgery that that left vocal cord paralysis, it's like almost like a slow gradual onset, or I've had cardiac patients that have gone home on that feeder grower recommendation, and yet you hear them become bubbly or gurgly, or you notice over the course of a couple of weeks that their cry gets, instead of being like a loud angry cat, it's like a softer murmur. Those, your vagus nerve innervates your larynx and it innervates your heart and i don't know if i don't know if in the process of trying to focus on the big nine in grad school if we do enough justice of focusing on the fact that how interconnected your larynx and your your heart actually are so when you're seeing those changes in an outpatient or in a home health setting you have to pick up the phone and call the pediatrician and the cardiologist and say, hey, I'm over here with Billy Bob, Su- Susie Q, and you know I'm seeing X, Y, and Z, and I just wanted to relay this information back to you because they see the speech pathologist typically incredibly more frequently, one to two times a week, and they may see the pediatrician like once a month for a weight check-in or the cardiologist once a month for a weight check-in. So due diligence, continuity of care. So, Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for pointing that out because it is super important. So, there are some sessions where the baby, to me, does not look ready to feed. And I just focus on doing calming and non nutritive sucking with a pacifier. And our goal is neuroprotection. And that's just what it is. And there's other sessions where I go and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this kid, like after reading the chart, okay, this kid's going to look like a disaster. We're definitely not going to be feeding today. And this actually happened this past week where it was a postnatal diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart where the kid had to get transferred here. There was a question of hypoxia. Um, They had a cardiac surgery right when they got here. And I went in and he was beautiful taking his pacifier looked great. And you just never know. And I think that's, you know, just part of being a therapist is being ready for anything. (laughs) So, and then, you know, at the end of my evaluation, I always want to talk to the parents about their goals. You know, is breastfeeding a goal? Is it is and then I want to talk to the team about if just total breastfeeding, is that even a possibility? You know, if different positions or different strategies are necessary for safe feeding, I'll talk to the parents about that. Like if I'm suspecting that a a vocal cord is out, it's typically the left one after different types of surgery. So I'll explain why we're going to be doing feeding and right sideline for a little while to the parent. And then I think one of the most important things that we can do in this setting is we can educate parents on how their infants are communicating with us. So educating on feeding cues, educating on stress cues, educating on how important their state and their state regulation is in terms of how they're feeding. You know, I think a lot of people, including providers, are sometimes like, hey, Dana, this kid over here is taking their pacifier like a champ. I think they're ready to feed. And then we go in and we try a bottle and it doesn't look like that. It's because feeding is so dynamic, it's so complex. And I think part of our role as feeding therapists is educating not only parents, but also the providers we work with of, hey, this is a very complex process. We're challenging the infant from a cardiorespiratory standpoint, from a neurological standpoint. When we are feeding them, this is why we need to hold off or this is what we're going to work on in the meantime. Because, you know, I think we've all seen when kids get pushed too far too fast, especially in a critical state, that that can lead to oral aversion. And that is an issue that is going to be way harder to fix than just kind of pumping the brakes. Yo, that's me. That's my job. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you know, you know all too well.
0: So, bottom line, folks, if it's negative... To neutral, stop whatever you're doing, regardless of size of said tiny human, and focus on neutral to positive. But
2: that's something that, you know, our providers in the hospital setting, nurse practitioners, PAs, doctors don't get education on. So we're, from an acute care standpoint, we are, our team is really trying hard to educate on oral aversion, the reasons why it develops, why it's better sometimes to hold off when a patient is not yet ready to feed. And then also just teaching caregivers, bedside nurses and families how to read the patient's cues. So that is a big initiative that we have right now. We we are also starting to track oral aversions in our cardiac patients, especially the ones that come in from home to the hospital, kind of like what you were talking about, the VSD patients, trying to track, okay, how many of them are orally averse? Can we Correlate it with any of the the different things where they started feeding on high flow. Did they have their home bottle? Were the parents involved and knew all the strategies? Or did a nurse just start feeding? You know, so we're trying to track those things so that we can also educate on process change, too, that can help in our hospital.
0: That's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) That is That You you didn't talk about the data collection end at the start of the conversation when we talked about what is a normal day look like. But
2: no, the data collection, unfortunately, mostly happens at home. That's not part of a work day. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep.
0: Yep, the carryover. Y'all, the the level of things that we do that's off the clock, that's for the on the clock. I feel that. (laughs) Yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so... I have so many follow-up questions. I'm just trying to focus my ADD for like two seconds. When you went to make a pitch to upper management on why you needed to do the data collection for process improvement, what did that actually look like?
2: So our management, thankfully, our therapy managers are super supportive of any and all projects that we think are important for the hospital. Obviously, if I said to them, I really need this time to work on this, they would give it to me. However, most of the time during a typical work day, I'm super busy seeing patients, talking with families, talking to providers, and I really can't even focus until I get home on my computer anyway. So, all that to be said, they're super supportive, and it's not always them telling me you need to do this at home. But really, it came from just my frustration with kids that I I have seen become aversive if they are fed too soon in the ICU following a surgery, especially for the older kids. And by older, I mean like, you know, five to six months that have established feeding plans at home. I think sometimes people in that setting think it's a good idea to feed them immediately after surgery because, oh, they were taking a bottle before. They know how to do it. They don't need to learn. They're fine. And I think a lot of people think of feeding a baby as, oh, well, they'll be soothed by that. You know, they're screaming because they're, you know, in pain after a surgery. Let's give them a bottle and instead of a dose of morphine. It's a non pharmacological way to treat pain almost. And I think, you know, in the process of educating people about oral more about oral aversion, but I was honestly just seeing that this was a a need and it it was frustrating to see these kids that I know work so hard with their home health or outpatient therapists at home come in and then it's like all kind of gets wiped back. I feel like when we, when we press feeding too soon, So um, I was just talking about that with some nurse practitioners that I am close to in the hospital and they were like, yeah, let's start tracking it. That's a great idea. And they kind of got me in contact with the pre-op people. And so we are, it's in the very, very infant baby stages of just data collection right this second. But thankfully I'm working with pre-op nurse on it. We're hoping to get a CVICU nurse to help us with data collection and presenting our our outcomes. And then one of my other speech colleagues is also helping me with it. So yeah, that's kind of how it went.
0: (laughs) But see, that's, it is the above and beyond that actually drives change for our profession.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's having the
0: professional curiosity and then the willingness to follow up on it.
2: Yes. And what I've learned and out of all of like the process changes I've tried to make at the hospital and different programs I've tried to start is that you, you need to have the research behind you to have provider support. You have to have the research. And unfortunately for us, there is not a ton of pediatric research. So we're oftentimes pulling over from adult world. And As importantly, we need data from your own institution to say, hey, this is happening here. Here's the research that supports why we need to change. How can we make this happen? And then just having the right people on your side and getting buy-in, I think, is very important.
0: Um, We had the pleasure of having Dr. Aaron Ross on just like two weeks ago, I think it was. It was like the second Tuesday in May, second Wednesday in May. And um, she was talking about the Sophie when they did the Sophie follow up research, and she didn't do it. A different facility did it, and they talked about how when they implemented the Sophie method, what they found, like when they implemented Sophie for inpatient stay, that the um, follow up research yielded less patients having on um, PFD in the long run. Oh, that's amazing! It was it was really phenomenal research. Cause I honestly, I didn't know that that research existed, but she was like, what we know is that this is wh- when we're addressing like flow rates and quality, um, here it's helping to prevent long-term damage. And I was like, yes, yes, but okay. All right. We only have a handful of minutes left, but like, I know you and I've had a couple sidebar conversations and one of them was all about how you have helped like lead and create a team, like an interprofessional practice team. Could you like maybe tease that? Because I definitely want to do that as a follow-up episode, but can you just like ever so briefly lay the framework for that?
2: Yes. Yeah. So we created a nasogastric tube clinic for our, cardiac infants that were going home and one of the main reasons we started started that was because we had a new surgeon come to our t- our hospital who came from another hospital that everyone went home with NG tubes and our practice historically especially when I first started was either they stay in the hospital and work on PO feeding till they can fully PO feed or they get a G tube so there was this kind of uh, meeting of the minds. You know, obviously a lot of people had different opinions about the program, but after doing a lot of research, this is a newer newer practice amongst cardiac centers across the country. So we w- would not, definitely would not be the only one. So we started it. I think four years ago now, three or four years ago, and so I work with a pediatric gastroenterologist, a pediatric cardiology dietitian, and a nurse, a GI nurse practitioner, and we all see these patients every two weeks out of the hospital. Obviously, I would love for every single one of my patients to get home health speech. Also on top of that, but what we are realizing, especially because of COVID, a lot of our patients are not getting home support from a feeding therapy perspective if they even if they go home with the nasogastric tube. So we are working hard on following up with our patients. And you know, a lot of the question comes in of okay, well, who is appropriate for an NG tube? Is it any patient that has a cardiac defect? Is it only certain ones? and that's something that we've been trying to tease through on our own as well. But really, we want the ideal patient to be somebody that's going to be making progress, that doesn't have a ton of comorbidities. Maybe they're just trying to make it to their next cardiac surgery and gain good weight, or maybe they are completely repaired and they're making progress every day and they don't really have any other medical needs to be in the hospital. So that's kind of why we created it, and it has been a very, very cool experience to learn different perspectives from different team members. I've learned so much from the dietitian and from the gastroenterologist that I work with. And really kind of, we all go in together, which is cool because we ask a lot of the same questions is what we've realized. And we can really come up with a a collaborative plan, including the family and the family's goals that have resulted in really great progress for our patients. I think last year, something like 70% of our patients progressed to fully PO feeding. And then the other 30% did end up having to get G-tubes at some point, but we are finding that it has been a very successful program. So very excited about that. And then I think we also touched on how we started an aerodigestive clinic at our center recently. So I've been grateful to be a part of that as well.
0: Okay. So let's do the whole follow-up in, uh, next month for dysphagia awareness month. Let's do, let's plan on it. that. Let's focus on clinics. Is that good?
2: That sounds great. I would love that.
0: Okay. All right. I have to be respectful of our time. So, um, with that being said, um, Dana, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being a bridge between NICU, PICU, C, I almost said CBI for cortical vision impairment. I'm sorry, cardiovascular NICU and all of us that are in the home health outpatient world. And, but if folks want to learn more from you, is there a way that they can reach out to you? Absolutely. My email is dana.ntwistle,
2: E-N-T-W-I-S-T-L-E at atriumhealth.org.
0: Beautiful. And everybody that's listening as always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, we absolutely love it. When you head over to Apple podcast and check out first bite and leave us a a review on the Apple podcast. Uh, Be sure to follow us on at first bite podcast and the first bite Facebook page. Also be sure to check out the book chasing the swallow that I your nerdy girl self, right here, uh, just finished writing after two and a half years and a whole lot Amazing. of painting. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, be sure to check out Chasing the Swallow on Instagram. And uh, everybody hold tight for the questions. Hold on one second. Feeding Matters guides system wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance.